0: If you have your Bible, then I would invite you to turn to Acts chapter 7, verses 1 to 16. Acts chapter 7, I will begin by reading from verse 1. So brothers and sisters, this is God's holy and inerrant word. And the high priest said, Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in the land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place." And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And And on a second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and her fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in a tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamar in Shechem. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Aidan Wilson, Wilson Tozer, also known as A.W. Tozer, was a 20th century American pastor, and he published many books, uh, titles such as The Pursuit of God and God's Pursuit of Man. One notable book that he wrote that has influenced many evangelicals is called The Knowledge of the Holy. The Knowledge of the Holy. And he begins the book with this famous line, and I quote, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Again, he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And then he goes on to say, always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. Were we able to know exactly what our most influential religious leaders think of God today, we might be able, with some precision, to foretell where the church will stand tomorrow. End quote. And so such quotes that I just made from Tozer are quite relevant for us today for this message as we begin to learn just how the Jews here in this passage thought about God and how Stephen thought about God. You see, at the end of chapter 6, we've learned that Stephen was a man who was with godly character. He was a man who was saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was doing the work of the Lord until he got into a lot of trouble with the Hellenistic Jews from the synagogue. And so Stephen and the Jews from chapter 6, verse 9, got into a debate, most likely dealing with the issue of God, Moses, and the law, and the temple. And most likely, perhaps, Stephen just told them that Jesus is God, that he's the Messiah, and that he's greater than Moses, uh, greater than the temple, and that he's the fulfillment of the law. However, Stephen then got into trouble. The Jews were then laying false charges on Stephen for blasphemy, to speak insults of God and the sacred things of God. They said that they heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God, back in verse 11. And they claimed that Stephen never ceases to speak words against this place, this holy place, which was the temple and the law, in verse 13. And he was also charged and said that they heard him say that Jesus will destroy this place, will destroy the temple and change the custom of Moses. And so Stephen was standing alone on trial before the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish council with the top-tier religious leaders in Jerusalem. It was the Supreme Court of ancient Israel, 70 elders and the high priest. Having heard the false charges given by the false witnesses, the high priest, who was Caiaphas at that time, asked Stephen this question, chapter 7, verse 1. Are these things so, Stephen? Are these accusations and charges about you, of speaking against God and Moses and the law and the temple, are they all true, Stephen? And so Stephen is put into a predicament where he needs to explain the false charges laid against him. And so he's going to defend his faith before the council. Now, as Christians, this is quite applicable, applicable for us to a certain degree. Although you may not suffer persecution nor stand before a council per se, you should always be ready to give a defense for why you're a Christian to those who ask of you. And this highlights the theme of apologetics. Now, the word apologetics does not mean we're good at apologizing. But apologetics just simply means the science of giving a defense of the Christian faith. And Peter presents this theme rather nicely in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14-16. to But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be pre- prepared to make a defense, this is the word, The Greek word is apologia, which is where we get the word apologetics. To make a apologetics, to make apologia, a defense, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now apologetics is not simply about, you know, debating with non-Christians and just winning debates and giving a lot of intellectual arguments from a philosophical and scientific arena. See, not everybody is called to be a highly skilled apologist and it can be overwhelming for some and to be transparent with you, I don't claim to be very good in this field of apologetics. However, Apologetics wise, every believer should at least grasp and know the essentials of the Christian faith and should have the ability, it should have the ability, should have the ability by the power of the Holy Spirit to humbly and to respectfully and to gently communicate and to articulate to others why you're a Christian and why you believe the Christian faith is true. And ultimately, you want to be able to tell others the hope that is in you, which is the gospel of salvation that brings hope to all sinners. And this can be very practical, especially when you go through hardships and trials as a Christian. If others see that you cling on to Christ and that you're not cursing God and abandoning the faith, they might ask you why you're still going to church, why you're still reading the Bible, why you're still praying, uh, why you're still speaking the things of God, then that could be an opportunity, or that should be an opportunity for you to present Christ to others, to tell them about the gospel hope that you have. Stephen, however, is about to give a defense that will cost him his life. He's falsely accused of blasphemy, and the consequence of blasphemy is capital punishment. Now, Stephen's defense here stretches from verses 2 to 53, so at least 50 verses. Uh, In the whole book of Acts, this is the longest speech or the longest message or sermon, if you will, in the whole book of Acts. Longer than the apostle Peter's. And also, Acts 7 is the longest chapter in this book. And so since Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit, and Luke's recording of Stephen's speech is divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, God deemed this chapter to be critical and important enough for Luke to write quite an extensive speech that he did. And we do well to pay careful attention to it. And so it's not possible to grasp the entirety of this speech in one sermon with the time that we have. So, therefore, it's best to divide this speech into parts. See, Stephen doesn't defend his faith by using philosophical arguments, although they're not necessarily a bad thing. But interestingly enough, Stephen also doesn't defend himself by telling the council, oh, I'm, I'm falsely accused, don't listen to them, or that the charges are wrong and that he needs to prove to them that he's innocent. He's not that explicit. Rather, Stephen's defense is grounded in Scripture. And so Stephen was accused of false charges regarding religious matters in Judaism. It is reasonable for him to address the counsel from the Old Testament. And so knowing that this is a rather extensive passage, what is the purpose? What are the purposes of Stephen's speech? What are his his aims here? What is he trying to do here? I think there are three purposes that you want to jot down and think about and keep in mind as you try to understand this long passage. You see, first, Stephen aims to show that he did not blaspheme God, Moses, law, and temple. He's trying to show that he did not blaspheme God. Instead, he does flip the narrative around to show that the Jews were actually the real wrongdoers which leads to the second purpose. Stephen aims to show that the Jews are just like their forefathers, who had a habit and a pattern of rejecting God's prophets and messengers, such as uh, Joseph and Moses. Uh, that's found in the final part of the speech in verses 51 to 53. You see, the prophets in the Old Testament have pointed and prophesied about the anticipated Messiah also referred to as the, the Righteous One here. But the Jews have rejected Christ, the Righteous One, by betraying and murdering him by having him crucified on the cross. And the third purpose is that Stephen aims to show that the Jews have a misconstrued understanding of the temple. They are too obsessed with the temple because they dogmatically believed that they, this is where the presence of God resides. And he aims to show that the Jews throughout the Old Testament that God was not put in a box, so to speak. The temple was never designed to confine God. And so we should ponder as we read this passage how does Stephen's speech address those charges? How does he confront the Sanhedrin of being rebellious and persecutors just like their forefathers? So it's important to have these three purposes in mind as you try to read through this passage. Uh, one thing to note about the Jews is that they take great pride in their Jewish tradition. They do not mind hearing about their heritage. In, the, in Psalms chapter 105-106, and uh, they help the Israelites to recount their history in exile and the reason to praise God and to give thanks. So the Sanhedrin here that Stephen speaking to they should be experts of the old testament it's not like they're ignorant it's not that they need to be re, it's not like they need to be educated per se however by going through the old testament Stephen wants to show them about something about the history that they may have never considered or that they have failed to understand because oftentimes traditions their own traditions have blinded them from clearly seeing the scriptures as it is. Remember the quote from A.W. Tozer, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Stephen will demonstrate that he is a biblical and a right thinking of God than the Jews here, who seem to have a a low view of God, who seem to think, yeah, God is in the temple. God is only here. But throughout this defense, Stephen aims to be God-centered because he has a high view of God. Now, some of you may enjoy a visual breakdown of this passage. So here's just how Stephen's speech is broken down. See, in verses 2 to 8, we we learn about God's promise to Abraham. Verses 9 to 16, we think about God's faithfulness to Joseph. Verses 17 to 43, which is a major portion of the speech, we learn about God's calling of Moses. And then verses 44 to to 50, We'll learn about God's dwelling place, which is directly talking about the temple. And then finally, in verses 51 to 53, this is the application, and that is God's indictment. So if you have never read the Bible before, maybe some of you are new here, maybe you've never read the Bible, you've never been to church, and this can be educational for you and quite informative because I hope that you will, it will give you a survey or just a brief introduction to the Old Testament. And hopefully, that will point you to Jesus and faith in Jesus Christ. And for many of us who have been believers for many years, I hope that this can also be a, fresh, a refresher for you. And so now we go to the exposition of this, of this passage. In verses 2 to 8, Stephen begins with God's promise to Abraham. God's promise to Abraham. See, he begins his speech by calling the brothers and fathers to hear him out. He wants them to listen to him. He wants their attention. He still treats them as brothers and fathers, his own kinsmen, not enemies. He still treats them with respect, with such greetings. And this really patterns the way, uh, patterns the, way the Apostle Paul, uh, the Apostle Peter, who addressed the Jews back in chapter 2 in, And furthermore, Stephen will then serve as an example for the Apostle Paul when Paul is put on trial before the tribunal in Acts chapter 22. He also addressed them as brothers and fathers. And so immediately, Stephen begins the story of Abraham, their ancestors, by talking about God, who is referred to as the God of glory. The God of glory. See, the Bible doesn't begin with man because it's not about man, not about us. If you read in the Bible and think that the Bible is all about you, then I think you're reading it wrong. This is also true of Jewish history in the story of Abraham. When we read the Bible, it's not about the Jewish history. It's not about Abraham per se. They did not begin with the Jews. This whole entire story of the Bible always begins with God having a right view of God, being God-centered, having a high view of God, because God is the key to all of biblical history, because he's the sovereign Lord who orchestrates human history. God is the God of glory, and this word glory here is doxa in the Greek, which is where we get our term doxology. See when, we see, when we sing the doxology at the end of the service, we're actually giving praise, all praise and all glory to God as a response of worship for all that we have experienced in the service and for all that God has done for us in the service. See, God of glory speaks of God's splendor and His radiance and magnificence and His greatness. And, and see, why Stephen describes God this way is because God's glory... It's, it's accompanied in various visible phenomena in the Old Testament. God's glory appeared as a cloud. God's glory appeared in the temple and, and in the tabernacle. But Stephen is pointing out that God's glory didn't reside in the temple, but he appeared outside of the temple. In fact, he appeared outside of Jerusalem and outside of Israel. Israel. And hence, Stephen introduces Abraham, his father, and the father of the Jews, into the scene, whereby God appeared to him. Now, many of you may remember Abraham. You should remember him from your Sunday school lessons and even your Bible readings. And if you're reading the Bible starting this year, you should have read the story of Abraham by now. You may also remember singing a song that goes like this, Father Abraham had many sons. I'm not going to go on, but... But mentioning Abraham may have put a smile on the face of the Jewish council. In their view, Abraham can be appropriately represented as the father of Judaism. He's their forefather. He's their ancestor. They pride themselves of being children of Abraham as physical and biological descendants. Being children of Abraham signified that they were special people of God because they were Jewish. And so, Stephen does acknowledge that Abraham was the father of Israel. He isn't guilty of blaspheming God, and he's not guilty of betraying his own people and his own Jewish history. If you were to ask Stephen in this passage, he would, he would tell, Are you a Jew here? He would say, Yeah, I'm still Jewish. I believe in the Messiah. I believe Jesus is the Christ. But here's the million dollar question Was Abraham originally a Jew? or a Gentile that is non-Jew. What you need to know about Abraham was that he wasn't originally a Jew, or an Israelite, or a Hebrew. Those things, those terms, those labels didn't exist during Abraham's time. Abraham was also wasn't originally from Israel or the land of Canaan during this time. Stephen understands and knows the origin of Abraham. God appeared to him when he was living in Mesopotamia. It is modern-day Syria and Iraq right now. See, Abraham and his family were originally in Ur of the Chaldeans. They were Chaldeans. And they would be a tribe who lived in the southern part of Babylonia. Now, if you remember the Old Testament, your Old Testament lessons that Babylonians were the enemies, of God, uh, the enemies of God and also enemies of Israel, and they were the ones who destroyed Jerusalem and exiled the Israelites from their land and into Babylon at the end of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. Indeed, Abraham was a Chaldean. He was a Babylonian. He wasn't a worshiper of the Lord. He wasn't a worshiper of Yahweh. He was a pagan. He was a heathen. He was an idol worshiper. Abraham would be considered ceremonially unclean and impure and unholy. See, before there was such a thing as Israelites, before there was a nation of Israel, before there was Moses, before there was a law and a temple, the God of glory, splendor and majesty, appeared, spoke to a pagan in Mesopotamia. Stephen's point is simple here. He's emphasizing the fact that God is not limited to a building and one geographical location. He's omnipresent. He is all-present. He can surely appear anywhere he pleases. He's not trapped. He's not bound and confined in a temple or in a box. James Montgomery Boyce once said this, and I quote, It is not as if Abraham was in Mesopotamia and God, perhaps from Mount Zion, many hundreds of miles away, shouted to him, Abraham, come over here. I want you to come to Palestine. Rather, God appeared to him right there in Mesopotamia in all his glory. End quote. You see, by God's grace, God's glorious appearance to Abraham it was the initial work of his plan of redemption and salvation. And we also learn uh, that God's glorious presence is more fully manifested in the person of Jesus Christ, whereby God the Son descended to earth from heaven through his incarnation, taking upon himself the human nature. And we read a couple of those verses already. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says that, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. And then also in Hebrews chapter 1, he is the radiance of the glory of God, that is Jesus. Now, so, going back to the passage, God called Abraham to move to the land of Canaan. However, Abraham only committed to God halfway, or partway. It was a partial commitment, because he settled in Haran, According to Genesis chapter 11, verse 31. See, Haran wasn't God's chosen location for him. It's not the land that God wanted to show him. It does beg the question was Abraham acting disobediently towards God during that time? Something to think about. But most likely, I think, Abraham stayed in Haran because of his father, Terah, and wanted him and his family to settle there. However, God did not respond to Abraham. Oh, this Abraham didn't even listen to me fully. I'm just going to leave him there, leave in Haran, and just find someone else who will obey me fully. No, that wasn't God's reaction. That wasn't God's response. This did not take away God's promises of showing Abraham the land. What we can learn about God here is that he's indeed patient, and slow to anger. Scripture tells us that Abraham was a man of faith. However, he didn't begin like that. Like Abraham, not all Christians begin their Christian life in having full, by having full of faith. We all have our setbacks from time to time, where we fail and sin and worry and not trust God. But God is merciful. He is gracious in our sins and even our failures. And like Abraham, everyone has to start somewhere where they should be progressively growing in their obedience and faith in the Lord. And so in verse 4, after his father died, God removed Abraham from the land of Canaan. This word remove here carries a forceful tone. It carries the idea of deportation. In the scriptures, just for instance, Israel was exiled or deported to Babylon. It's the same word. Stephen recognized God's sovereignty over Abraham's life. I don't want you to live here. I want you to be here. And th- At the same time, we also know in Genesis twelve four that Abraham obeyed the Lord's instruction and moved to the land of Canaan, which will be modern-day Israel. See, while it is true that God put Abraham In the land of Canaan, Scripture says in verse 5, Yet God gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. Now, two of God's promises are mentioned. There was the land and there was the offspring. There are more promises, but it's mentioned land and offspring. But Abraham had none of those things when he arrived. In Canaan, he had no idea what to expect when he moved from Mesopotamia. God promised that his offspring will inherit the land. But if you know the story of Abraham, he and his wife Sarah didn't have children, they were at an old age. And not only that, Sarah was barren and couldn't have children. But God fulfilled his promise of giving Abraham a glimpse of that fulfillment. And that is by miraculously opening Sarah's womb. And they were both able to have a child who was named Isaac. And so God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision found in Genesis 17. All males will be circumcised eight days after birth. And that's going to be the physical sign or mark that they're part of God's covenant people and blessing and refusing to be circumcised in Israel in Israel would put them outside of God's covenant. And so in verse 8 here, this, this circumcision was then practiced generation after generation, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and then to the 12 sons and so forth. This shows that God will keep his promise that God, that Abraham's descendant, will continue down the line. And you know, as I think about Abraham's life, Abraham could have complained to God when he arrived in the land of Canaan, God, you promised me these things, and now I'm here. Give them all to me. However, we know in the story that it did not happen immediately, but we also know that Abraham grew in his faith. He trusted that God will keep and fulfill his promises, and the author of Hebrews tells us This in the famous chapter known as the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 verse 8 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Now one important comment we should take note of is the concept of a sojourner in verse 6. Verse 6 says, God spoke to this to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in the land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. Now Stephen is telling us that Abraham's days in Canaan were merely a pilgrim or a sojourner. And we remember, we remember at the end of Genesis, Abraham's descendants will not live in the land, but in Egypt for 400 years, and they would be, be slaves there as is mentioned in Exodus chapter 1. This was promised back in Genesis 15, 13, when Abraham was asleep, was dreaming, he says, your descendants will be in this land, enslaved for 400 years, but I will bring them back out, and they will worship me here in this place. And so when God told Abraham this, this was also meant to test Abraham's faith. He had no possession of the land. His descendants will not get the land until hundreds of years later. That's a long time to, that's a very long time of a wait. But we remember, in hindsight, as we look at throughout the the biblical history, that their time in Egypt was not permanent. God also promised that he would judge Egypt and bring his people back to the land to worship him. So why I think Stephen brings up the concept of a sojourner is probably a rebuke to the Jewish people here who idolize the temple that is situated in the land of Jerusalem. Now, I strongly think and believe that the land was an important promise given by God to Israel. It was was all part of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And I think this fulfillment of giving Israel the land Will be fully consummated and made realized when Christ returns to set up his millennial kingdom on earth. Yet at the same time, it seems like the Jews here have forgotten that they're sojourners in the land. They have the temple, but the land is technically ruled by the Romans. Even though they have the physical temple, it will eventually be destroyed in AD 70. And then afterwards, after the siege of Jerusalem in the 80s, 70s, the Jews ceased to be a nation, ceased from being a nation for centuries until Israel became a nation again in the 20th century. And this is a reminder for us as Christians. We are sojourners here. We are pilgrims. We're only here on earth temporarily. And the temptation for us is to put so much value and so much treasure in the earthly possessions and blessings. Even though they're not necessarily bad things, and they can be God's blessings. However, we must remember that they're just temporal, they're not permanent. So let us not get too blinded by these things and forget and forget to pursue Christ and to set our minds on the heavenly things. Now we'll cover in the next few verses. And that is the life of Joseph. In verses 9 to 16, Stephen reminds the Jews of God's faithfulness to Joseph. So from verses 1 to 16 so far, all of those stories are mentioned in the book of Genesis. So I encourage you to read it in more detail. Now here, we learn about God's faithfulness to Joseph. This is where Stephen will start to allude to the theme of rejection and mistreatment of God's prophets. Now, talking about Joseph, nowhere in Scripture does it explicitly state that Joseph was a prophet. However, in Genesis 37, Joseph had two dreams, and they were prophetic visions for the future, that Joseph will reign and rule over his family members and that they will bow to Joseph. However, his brothers rejected Joseph. They were jealous of him, they had an intense negative feeling toward him, and so they decided to sell him into slavery. Initially, they wanted to kill him, and then later on, the things plans have changed, and they sold him into slavery. And so Joseph was away from the land of, that God promised to Abraham, and then he was in Egypt. and the rest of the story will be focused on Jacob and the rest of his sons, right? No. Actually, it did not. Somewhat, but not really. The story, the story of Joseph does continue from Genesis 39. In all words, while he's in Egypt. And what, you, know what, you know what it says in Genesis 39 verse 2? It says that the Lord was with Joseph and granted him success. And this also returns to one of Stephen's purposes that God is not confined to the temple or the land. God God did not stay in the land of Canaan, although he is omnipresent, of course he's there, uh, but God did not if you will, this is just a language issue, but God did not stay in the land of Canaan while Joseph was in Egypt. Instead, the text tells us in verses 9 to 10 that God was with him, and rescued him from of, out of, of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. You see, what we can learn here is that God was faithful in preserving Joseph. He earned favor in the sight of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh gave him the authority to be governor over Egypt. So over and over again in in Genesis, God was giving Joseph success. God was with him. And I think one of the important themes in the life of Joseph is God's sovereignty over evil. See, the brothers meant it for evil in selling Joseph into slavery, but he understood and knew that God meant it for good, for the saving of many lives. You see, after Joseph was rejected and sent off to Egypt, Jacob and his family experienced a famine in Canaan. And so he told his sons to go and get food from Egypt. And then eventually, the rest of the family moved to Egypt. Jacob died in Egypt, but he was buried back in Canaan in Genesis 50. Now, when looking at the life of Joseph here in Genesis, he is the type of Christ. He does, or maybe he, or another word is, he represents Christ in some shape or form. When you look at the life of Joseph, both of them, both Joseph and Jesus had similar life events. Just as Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, and the text in Genesis says that he was sold for 20 shekels of silver so Christ was sold by Judas Iscariot for 30 pieces of silver. And just as Joseph was mocked and rejected by his family, so Christ was was rejected by his own family members and his own village and even from his own people, the Jews. Just as Joseph was exalted and after and through being sold into slavery and into prison, So Christ was exalted after and through humiliation on the cross. Just as his family and the people in Egypt bowed before Joseph, so every knee should bow before Jesus in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. So many comparisons I can give out. But Stephen here wants to highlight and point to the Jewish council that they were just like their brothers, the, 12, the 11 bro- the brothers who rejected Joseph. And that's, where, that's why there's the indictment in verses 51 to 53, where it says, if I can read out right now, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So, did, so do you. And hopefully next by next week we'll look look at this passage more in depth. But I suppose suppose the application is really to answer this question that A. W. Tozer presented. What comes into your mind when you think about God? Some of you may think that God is just someone you go to and worship on a Sunday. He's confined to a to the church building or that his importance is, is reserved only on a sunday at 3 a.m to 11 a.m or maybe you think that god is just someone you can depend on and pray to when life gets hard although that's true or maybe you have a high view of god may, maybe you believe you may believe that he is sovereign yes he's in control of everything you may say that he's trustworthy and faithful you know that you're to honor god but throughout the week even this past week how do you, how did you honor god how did you demonstrate that god is sovereign and trustworthy how does your life measure by what you believe you see stephen showed that he had a high view of god because he knew the scriptures so well and was able to articulate the stories he demonstrated his faith in the Lord by proclaiming this message even though it would get him into trouble. And I think by studying the scriptures he cultivated those godly characters in Acts 6. He was full of spirit and he was full of wisdom. And we know what Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed for us to the Father to sanctify them in the truth. With the truth. Your word is truth. We need to be in the word. Because it sanctifies us, it makes us whole more and more holy. It is the Word that is going to make us and help us grow in holiness. Stephen knew that he did not rem- that God did not remain in the land of the promise. He is all present. He is meticulously sovereign, and that He is faithful in keeping His promises. He is so involved in the affairs of humanity. He's so involved in your life right now, and even throughout the week. Even during this defense, Stephen's face was like a, was the face of an angel at the end of chapter 6, verse 15, which might reflect a touch of God's glory. Just like how God's glory was with Abraham and Joseph, so was he with Stephen here. See, I I, I think and believe that when you're away from the Word, your view of God will get dimmer and weaker and lower. You will have a high view of self, a high view of the world, and you will have a low view of God and His Word, and your obedience and faithfulness toward Him will waver and waver and waver. Think of how many times that happened throughout the week. Think about how many times that happened in the past year When you, if you have been away from the Word. Steve Lawson once said, and I quote, a high view of God leads to high worship and holy living, but a low view of God leads to trivial worship and low living. You see, if you're, if you're not in the Word, if you're not growing, your Sunday morning will just... Be trivial, superficial, because it's just another thing that you add to the to your Sunday routine. Worship of God is not just reserved for a Sunday; it's supposed to be every second of your life throughout the week. And when a day comes for you to defend your faith, I wonder if 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 you will know how to defend your faith, because. You have not been equipping yourself and sharpening the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And when the day comes when your faith is tested, just like Abraham and Joseph, will you pass the test? Will you endear to the end? Will you continue to trust Him? No matter what, the cause is. Tozer says the same thing from the book that I quoted perverted notions about God soon wrought the religion in which they appear. The long career of Israel demonstrates this clearly enough and the history of the church confirms it. So necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God that that when that concept in any measure declines, the church with her worship and her moral standards decline along with it. So really, the challenge for you and my encouragement and exhortation to you is this. Do you know your God as clearly revealed to you in Scripture? Are you growing more and more progressively in your view of God, how you think about God? And do you have a high view and lofty view of God? And if not, if you've been struggling, if your view of God got dimmer, then my encouragement, my challenge for you is will you Make it a commitment to grow in that knowledge of God. And so I'll end this message with, again, Tozer's words. Think about this. The the heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it is once more worthy of Him and of her. In all her prayers and labors this should have first place. We do the greatest service to the next generation of Christians by passing on to them undimmed and undiminished that noble concept of God which we receive from our Hebrew and Christian fathers of generations past. This will prove of greater value to them than anything that art our science can devise. End quote. Indeed, let us pray and ask the Lord to help us to elevate our minds and our view of God this morning and forevermore. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Oh Lord, we can fall into this same pit just like the religious leaders where our view of you can just be so shallow and, and limited of you. Even when life circumstances hit us hard, it does bring up fear. It does stir up fear. It does affect our minds and our thoughts of you. And the Apostle Paul does challenge us to destroy every argument, every, every lofty arguments that are raised against the knowledge of God and to take our minds captive to obey Christ. So Father God, I pray that you challenge us to think about God, to think about you in all of your attributes, in all of who you are so that our hearts, our affections for you will be lifted high and our love for you will grow and that our worship of you will be deep and our obedience to you will be firmly grounded and committed, more committed to you. And so I pray that you help us to continue to stand boldly and firm in our faith because of our understanding, because of our relationship with you, our deep relationship with you. So would you please help us this morning as we continue to to grow in our love for you and grow in our knowledge of you. This I pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.